Shalom, everyone. This is Rabbi Tama Davis Hart bringing you a message tonight entitled, The Holy Spirit Told Me to Do It. During the time I was acquiring a Christian education, and I, and I qualify this by saying I've been trained both in Christianity and in Judaism, and uh, I feel that has provided me the education needed for optimal teaching of Messianic Judaism, pulling from uh, both sides of the fence, as it were, since we're attacked by both sides. <laughs> All right. During the time I was acquiring a Christian education, I ran into many of the examples I'm about to describe. By far, these are not the only examples I could give to illustrate my point, but they'll suffice. The first and probably the most often encountered can be used as a paradigm across the board by just applying other facts to the basic premise. Keep in mind these examples are all from professing Christians. In my first example, an individual wanted to go to a special Bible study on a Friday during the time he was normally scheduled to work. He decided to go to the Bible study instead of going to work. When asked by his supervisor why he hadn't been at work, he replied, the Holy Spirit had told him to go to the Bible study instead. Another announced that he was led by the Holy Spirit to go into a mission field and to go immediately, even though he had responsibilities and obligations that required his attention. He dutifully went and left his obligations and his responsibilities to other people. A pastor had just purchased an expensive car on time and subsequently was called to another post in another part of the country at a greater salary with living expenses than a car provided. When he left, he asked a friend to deliver the car to the bank that financed it and to tell him he no longer needed the car since he had been called to a new post and he was given a car. The financial institution was definitely less than pleased, and they told the friend the pastor had contact with the bank. They told him that there was a contract that he had to keep. The friend told him that the pastor had told him he was led by the Holy Spirit to return the car because he had been having difficulty paying the monthly payments. Since God provided him with an alternative means of transportation, he had to follow the injunction of the Holy Spirit. In another situation, a church bought a large building and after several months found they could hardly make the payments. They sent a committee to the owner and told him they could no longer pay for the property and to write it off in the monthly mortgage payments by giving it to them as a contribution. The owner contended that this was not a contribution, but nothing more than stealing. The committee invoked the Holy Spirit and said it was the solution that the Spirit had led them to, and it could not be theft if the Holy Spirit validated it. So what is wrong with all of these scenarios? I'm sure you've heard examples like this throughout your lifetime as well. So let's look at them from a broad perspective. We can see in all these examples professed believers rationalizing their behavior by invoking God or the Ruach HaKodesh, that's the Holy Spirit. We constantly encounter professed believers who justify their behavior, their particular belief, extra-biblical revelation or interpretation of scripture by invoking the validation of the Holy Spirit's injunction. To the person making the pronouncement, they may earnestly believe that they are led by the Holy Spirit in their actions or beliefs. But is that a safe assumption for us to take that person's word, position, or pronouncement as coming from God? I think not. 
or it lends standing to those who are gripped in self-delusion by invoking the name of God to lend credibility to whatever they say or do, and by virtue of this abstract validation, hold themselves guiltless and absolved from sin. So let's take the examples already given and see if there may be more than meets the eye. In example number one, the man who didn't go to work and instead went to a special Bible study could not have received this revelation from the Holy Spirit. Those that are familiar with the Torah, that's God's instructions, know immediately why the Spirit of God would never invoke such instructions. God abhors those who make a covenant and do not live up to it. We are instructed in this Torah, in God's Torah, to live up to our commitments even when it's a bad choice. And this holds true throughout all the examples. In Deuteronomy 20.17, Israel was commanded, quote, But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Whatever you might think of God's instructions, all the inhabitants of the Promised Land were either to be killed or driven out. In the book of Joshua, we come to an interesting episode, starting with Joshua 9.3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon, which is within the land of promise, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, we are told they acted craftily and sent emissaries to Joshua. These emissaries pretended to have come from a long way off outside the environs of the land of promise, and to lend credibility to their story, they took worn-out sacks on their donkey and worn-out wineskins, torn and mended to make it look like that they had made a long journey. Their clothes were old and worn, and their sandals patched, and the bread was old and crumbly. When they arrived at Joshua's camp in Gilgal, they said to him, We've come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Joshua and the men of Israel were suspicious, but in the end they accepted their story and made a covenant or contract with them. So the text from Joshua 9.15-18 through 18, reads, And Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. And it came about at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were neighbors, and that they were living within their land. Then the sons of Israel set out, and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephira, Beeroth, Kiriath, Jerim. And the sons of Israel did not strike them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Yahweh Elohim, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a league with them, to let them live, and the princes of the congregation unto them. And it came to pass at the end of three days, after they had made a league with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors, and they dwelt among them. And the children of Israel journeyed, and came into their cities on the third day, and the cities are again named. And the children of Israel smote them not, because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation murmured against the princes. These are two different ways that these same scriptures are written. Then in verse 24, we see these emissaries justifying their deception. Joshua 9:24 through 6 says, so they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told your servants that Yahweh your Elohim had commanded his servant Moshe to give you all the land, 
and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and have done this thing. And now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Thus he said to them, and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel, and they did not kill them. My point is this. Joshua and the congregation of Israel had a clear mandate to destroy all the inhabitants of the promised land, and not, and not to do so was a direct contradiction of that command that should have drawn dire consequences from God for not obeying him. Yet it appears that one's oath, covenant, or contract held precedence in the eyes of God, for he permitted Joshua and the congregation of Israel to escape any consequences for their actions by honoring the contract they had made with Gibeon, even if it was made under false pretenses. In the same context, when we've made a covenant or a contract with those we work or with any other party, we must fulfill that contract, for it is of the Lord. And when we're told we can escape the conditions of a contract by invoking the Ruach HaKodesh, or the Holy Spirit, in contradiction of the Torah, I have to wonder if the Spirit invoked is not the Ruach, but the Spirit of Hasatan, or Satan. For God would never contradict his own commands. In the example number two, where a man went to a mission field immediately, instead of taking care of his responsibilities and obligations, the same principle applies. For a responsibility falls under an obligation, and as such is also a contract. A contract is an oath. When we take on obligations in our lives, be they financial, social, or individual, God expects us to live up to our word. If we profess to represent God, we bring dishonor in his name when we fail to act as he has decreed in his Torah. Not only have we violated our oath, but we have sinned against God, and the third commandment by bringing his name into disrepute. Even if in this man's case he had an opportunity that might not be available later under Torah, we must first take care of our responsibilities and obligations before taking advantage of that opportunity. If the door of opportunity is truly opened by God, it will be there at a later time if we cannot avail ourselves of the immediate opportunity. I can imagine that in this case, the man who forsook his obligations most likely failed in his endeavor, for his actions were based upon an ungodly foundation. And in the process, he opened not only himself up to ridicule for forsaking his obligations, but he opened up God to do the same ridicule. How many times have you heard someone comment on the conduct of a Christian who fails to meet his or her obligations as being the norm instead of the exception. Obviously not all Christians fail to live up to their word, even at the expense of their own comfort. But because of the lack of Torah training and knowledge of God's mind as expressed through God's Torah, they are brushed with a wide stroke of condemnation because the majority fall into this category. In Christianity, the majority of the clergy teach that God's laws are dead. They totally misunderstand Paul's teaching, or Rabbi Shaul, if you will, in Hebrew, and they take it to mean that God's law is dead, that God's laws are the traditions of men, and that's just not so. There is an oral Torah, that is the traditions of men, built upon God's Torah, and then there's God's Torah, the living Torah, Yeshua, Yahshua, God saves, 
Christians call him Jesus. So there is a complete difference between the two that Christians are not taught. And if I could teach one thing to Christianity, to Christians, it's that God's laws are not dead, they have not been abrogated, and that we are held responsible to follow them. Now, what about the pastor who left town, and because he was being given a new car, left town, and the car he had contracted for with the financial institution, he financed it through. Did God, having given him a new post that bettered him financially, abrogate his past financial responsibilities? Not according to God's Torah. Could the pastor have sold the car and paid off his debt instead of leaving a mess for somebody else to straighten out for him? Yeah. If not, shouldn't he, with the increase in his income, have addressed his obligation and contract, honored it in God's name by living up to his contract? How terrible it is when we invoke God into our dishonest dealings. Doesn't that say volumes about our own character? Especially with pastors. Why is it that some of them excuse all their unethical or even dishonest practices under the cover of God's name? If anyone should know better, it should be them. And they will be held to a higher standard of accountability when they stand before God. The problem is that using God's name or invoking the Holy Spirit to confirm or allow behavior is so common, even the clergy, when there is no substance or credibility to what is being said or acted upon. This is because of a lack of teaching or understanding of God's Torah. Christianity doesn't teach it correctly. Rabbinic Judaism doesn't teach it correctly. They both have an agenda. The faith of our Messiah is Messianic Judaism. That's what he taught his disciples. That's what Paul was converted to and not Christianity. He was a rabbinic Jew who converted to Messianic Judaism. And if you have any questions or comments or concerns about that during this program, you can go to our website at rabdavis.org, click Ask the Rabbi link, and post your concerns there. And I'll be happy to address them in detail. God's instructions on how we are to conduct our lives individually, socially, communally, or in business are all in His Torah. Going back to example number one, how is it that God so holds up the duty to honor a contract or oath, even an ill-advised one, over against his own commandments? Well, he doesn't. We're not to take lightly our obligations and contracts, ill-advised or not, even to the point of causing ourselves deprivation. You might think of it this way. Your word, as a representative of God, is the word of God, and you must not besmirch it. Our last example is more common than you'd think. Churches often take on obligations that they absolutely see no way of meeting. The leaders usually assuring the congregation that God will provide, completely ignoring the injunction that we are to be good stewards of whatever God had given us. In our example of the church that could not meet their mortgage payments, who seeking a way out of their dilemma turned to the owner and told him that in lieu of their making their monthly payment, he should write the payments off as contributions. The owner rightly pointed out their sin to them that was not a contribution but theft of him. In this particular case, the church could not honestly see that what they were insisting on was in fact theft of property and money belonging to their antagonists because God had revealed the solution to them. Not only had they broken the law of oaths and contracts, but now had also broken the Eighth Commandment. 
You know, people delude themselves when they don't know God's Torah, God's instructions. Most people, and I certainly don't mean all who invoke the validation of the Holy Spirit to validate some decision, belief, or course of action in their lives, should first pay heed to Scripture. In John 1 John 4, 1, we are told, quote, not to believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, unquote. How do we do that? By knowing God's instructions, God's Torah, and trying the spirit against God's word. If it's contrary, we know that it's not the Holy Spirit because God does not contradict his own word. In all the examples given, and each and every one of them contradicted God's Torah, and that can only leave us with a conclusion that the spirit they obeyed was not the spirit of God. It was the spirit of Hasatan, Satan. We're told to avoid making oaths by subsequent contracts in Matthew, where Yeshua is delivering a soliloquy regarding oaths in Matthew. And I want you to look at the concept here, and not only at the literal, for the subject of these passages includes the conduct of men who invoke God's name or his spirit for their own purposes. Yeshua knew, and the tendency is for unethical men and women to invoke his name or the injunction of the Holy Spirit to give credence to their actions. I hear this all the time, people wandering into the synagogue now and then. Oh, the Holy Spirit told me to come here and speak to your congregation and this and that and the other. I know that's not true. I know that is not of God. I would never walk into a church or any other religious institution for the first time and tell the rabbi or the clergy that I was told by God to come and speak to their congregation. <laughs> That's just not the way God works. Again, you've heard that the ancients were told, as it says in Matthew 5.33, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to Yahweh. And 5.34, but I say to you, make no oath at all. And then he remarks further as he regards, regards oaths. In Matthew 5.37, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond this is of evil. Now, I'm not saying that God's Spirit does not communicate with us and lead us, but we must be careful when a statement is preceded by God told me or the Ruach led me. For even Yeshua has said such invocations harbor the element of evil within them. In closing, let me give you one more example from Scripture about the absolute necessity to fulfill your contracts, your oaths, and obligations. And I'm taking this example from Judges, and the subject is Jephthah. Jephthah was a judge of Israel and the commander of its army against the children of Ammon. As he was going into battle, he made a foolhardy vow. He said to God that he would sacrifice the first thing that came out of the door of his house, after returning from victory as a burnt offering. That's in Judges 11. Well, the first thing that came out of his house upon his return home, after defeating the Ammonites, was his beloved daughter. Now keep in mind that God had commanded Israel in Deuteronomy 18.10 that, quote, There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or daughter to pass through the fire. In other words, no Israelite was to sacrifice either his sons or daughters to God. So here's the quandary. His vow, however horrible, if honored, would violate a clear law against such child sacrifice. Yet Jephthah did not 
resort to annulling his vow according to God's injunction against the child sacrifice. His vow was a foolhardy and stupid mistake that showed his lack of faith in Yahweh Elohim more than anything else, but he was constrained to keep it. Even his daughter submitted to the vow, but asked for two months to mourn her virginity, and for many years a festival was held in her honor in Israel. What's amazing from our point of view is that God did not intercede. He did not stay the hand like Abraham, but allowed Jephthah to carry out his vow, and in Judges 11.39 we read, quote, And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow which he vowed, and she knew no man, unquote. Abraham had made no vow. From this and the foregoing we must understand that God does not take lightly our oaths, our vows, contracts, obligations, and the Spirit of God, no matter how sincerely believed, would ever direct us to violate them even at the cost of our own displeasure. Amen.